Finding the right foundation is harder than ever. Il Maquillage makes it easy to find your perfect match online. No store required. With 50 shades of flawless coverage and over 60,000 five-star reviews, the hype is real. Their online quiz uses AI to find your ideal shade in seconds. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. After a decade of double-digit growth in its, uh, its military spending, China is now the dominant power, regional power, in the Western Pacific. I'm Jason Fields, Reuters Opinion Editor, and this week I'm talking with David Axe and Matthew Galt of Wars Boring about just how strong China is militarily, and also how the U.S. military matches up with China's. It's the subject of a great piece that David wrote for us a few weeks ago. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. David, do you mind uh, just sort of taking us through the article? I mean, what's uh, what it's all about? Sure. So uh, I'm going to uh, posit two seemingly contradictory things. Uh, number one, China is is strong. Number two, China is weak. Uh, both of these things are true from a certain point of view, uh, and it helps uh to understand how those things can be simultaneously true uh, helps us understand what China is, as a military power is trying to achieve in the world and what the United States uh, should do about it. Okay, so, um, I mean, we're looking at the two... I mean, the United States often said to be the greatest military in the world, right? Um, certainly most aircraft carriers, a lot of other measurable uh, details that point that direction. China, I mean, we're sort of talking about how comparable they are, right? Um, how they stack up or, and in, at least uh, you were talking in the article about it being regional versus global, right? Right, so that's the clear, that's the, the most important distinction. Uh, the United States possesses the world's most powerful global military, uh, but if you if you zero in on a particular region of the world, that calculus changes. In the Western Pacific, China possesses the most powerful military. So if what you aim to do is to be able to influence events uh, all over the world uh, and even influence them decisively, then you have to build a military that can start from wherever it's based, usually your own country, get to wherever the action is, and make a big difference, uh, preferably quickly. Uh, that is a global military power befitting a country that has assumed for itself a global role. So, in other words, the United States. Uh, that's a different thing, though, than being the sort of permanent, dominant power in a region of the world. Uh, and in the Western Pacific, uh, which is one of the 
you know, increasingly important economic centers of gravity of the entire world. Uh, the United States can uh, deploy forces there and possibly even decisive forces for some sort of high-tech conflict. But the United States is not the dominant power in that region. After a decade of double-digit growth in its, uh, its military spending, China is now the dominant power, regional power, in the Western Pacific and has equipped itself uh, to, to be that. that the, the implication is that China does not appear to be trying to challenge the United States in military terms on a global scale. It hasn't bought the equipment that makes that possible. But China has clearly staked out a, uh, a claim on the Western Pacific as that region's dominant military power. And I think it's safe to say today uh, the United States uh, comes second to China as a military power in that region. Okay, so uh, when we talk about the Western Pacific, people have been hearing an awful lot about the South China Sea in the last few weeks, uh, maybe the last couple of months. Um, and that seems to be where a lot of the concerns centered. I mean, there's China is actually building islands, if I understand it right, uh, out of, uh, I guess it's very shallow water. And uh, the Philippines are there. Uh, and the United States has been saying, stop building islands. I mean, do you see this as, uh, I mean, is this kind of a potential flashpoint? Is this uh, a good example to sort of look at where the United States stacks up against China in a potential conflict there? Uh, the the islands themselves, there may be. Um, yes, it's true. China is is building artificial reefs uh, in the South China Seas, um, or in the China Seas. Uh, but the uh, there may be a diplomatic or environmental solution to to that problem. Uh, you may be able to talk your way out of any kind of potential clash, or the islands may simply collapse and dissolve into the sea, uh, building. <laughs> Building artificial islands on a fragile coral reef is not always a, uh, a plan for like long-term uh, structural stability. So, um, but yeah, is it a flashpoint? Sure it is, but the, the, the islands themselves are not the point. Um, in fact, from a certain point of view, the islands reflect weakness. The fact that China has to dredge uh, sand and dump it onto a coral reef in order to build an outpost in the China Seas is indicative of the fact that China doesn't possess the military power to, um, well, I don't know, you know, put airplanes on a ship and simply sail them out into the China Seas. Uh, which is not to say China is not powerful in the China Seas. Absolutely it is, uh, because China's there, uh, so you don't, you don't need a whole lot of long-range military power projection to make a difference in the China Seas. Uh, it's just, it's yet another... Um, point of contention between the United States, American allies, countries in the region besides America's strong allies, and China. The, the point, though, is that you have two competing um, economic and political systems, uh, the sort of U.S.-centric, quote-unquote, free world, and then China. And one of the tenets of America's role in the world for a long time has been free trade, and uh, freedom of navigation. Now, China is certainly in favor of, of trade, uh, but China uh, has disputed 
freedom of navigation in uh, what we what once were international undisputed international uh, waters and international airspace. So China's been carving out air defense identification zones where it sort of unilaterally unilaterally declares that it is in command of a big chunk of air that previously was, you know, everyone understood to be international and so open to everyone. Uh, and uh, China, by building these artificial islands, could be trying to make a legal claim that it also then owns the economic zone around those islands, uh, which, depending on you know what treaty and what international law you're you're citing, gives them uh, gives China uh, control over possibly millions of square miles of ocean and everything underneath that. And the United States would dispute those claims. So what what do you think it would take for these two countries to go to blows with each other over over this area? The end of the um, world. I think it would take the end of the world. Okay, so this is just extremely un this is an extremely unlikely scenario. You think a, that they would ever a high tech shooting war between China and the United States. Um, the moment we fire we or they, the United States or China fires the first shot, we've all lost. I mean the the world's economy would would I don't know if collapse is the right world, but uh, right word. But the the damage that uh, a shooting war between the U.S. and China would do to the entire planet means you can't win. No one can win. I mean the 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 economic destruction, the ecological destruction, the sort of rolling back of decades of of uh, of effort on the part of most of the world to kind of create a safe. Uh, rule-oriented system for, uh, you know, development and trade and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, nobody wins in a shooting war between the United States and China. But that, so the thing is that military force is not always for military force. You, you possess a military in order to back up, uh, uh, back up your diplomacy and, and also for domestic purposes. So uh, you don't always have to pull the trigger for a gun to be useful. There's a lot of um, posturing and I, I posturing. I don't mean that to to, to imply that posturing is empty. Uh, right. You can project force as a clear expression of your seriousness, uh, and hopefully you don't ever really have to use it. Although you can come close and even use it a little bit. Uh, there's plenty of examples of limited use of force between. Uh, major powers that didn't escalate in, es escalate into a full a full scale war. So uh, you know the just because I think that a global war between the United States and China or a uh, full scale war I don't think it would be truly global in nature. I, just because I think that's highly highly unlikely doesn't mean that China's military moves and America's military moves in the Western Pacific don't matter. They do. They are part and parcel of. Uh, of of uh, negotiation, of diplomacy, of politics in that region. Could you describe the Chinese military as it now stands? I mean, would you say that it's? Um, I actually don't know whether it's got uh, more. I mean, does it have an enormous land army with uh, millions of troops? Uh, you know, just sort of tell us what it's comprised of. Right. So the Chinese military today. Uh, does have a substantial land force because China is a, uh, not exclusively, but is a continental power that borders rivals or outright enemies. So uh, China needs, unlike the United States, China is always going to need a large land army 
at the very least to um, you know keep an eye on uh, on Russia, <laughs> among others, among other neighbors. Uh, but China looking to the to its east uh, and um, eyeing the mineral resources of the China Seas and also the sea trade routes that China depends upon to import its energy and export its goods. So eyeing its eastern frontier, China has also developed into a powerful naval and and air force. So uh, China has is on track to very soon have, uh, by most measures, the world's second largest navy after the United States and is pretty much um, uh, neck and neck with Russia at present for the world's second largest air force after the United States. And uh, the air and sea forces are mostly for power projection into the region, not globally. China has not developed the systems and the infrastructure it needs for global sustained global presence, but it, it can project these forces into the China seas in order to back up its increasingly forceful claims on those waters. Just to, to ask you know, for specifics, if you're going to become a global force, what do you need? Don't look at the pointy stuff. If you want to understand a country's intentions, uh, like uh, how far it wants to project force and how... Um, on what scale it wants to be a uh, you know influence world events in military terms, so don't look at the pointy stuff. Don't look at the aircraft carriers and the fighter jets. That stuff's important, but look behind that stuff at the logistical uh, systems and the basing infrastructure that makes it possible for things like fighter jets and aircraft carriers to even get to where they need to be to matter. So the United States, for example, as the world's um, the world's sole globe-spanning uh, military superpower has hundreds of bases literally all over the world, from pole to pole, both hemispheres, all hemispheres, uh, every ocean, every landmass. So the United States can um, put people and equipment everywhere at great cost. I mean, our the, the defense bill, the defense bill, we put more into defense as a percentage of GDP than anybody. Is that correct in the United States? Well, we don't really have good numbers from China uh, because okay. China lacks con uh, transparency. Also, when you talk about um, military spending, what are you counting? So if you count, in the United States, if you count the Department of Defense budget, if you count nuclear weapons spending in the Department of Energy, if you count the Veterans Administration and other miscellaneous accounts that are not technically in DOD, the United States spends close to a trillion dollars a year. And, and, and the United States total budget something about four trillion, if I remember right, something like that. So it's significant. Uh, it's very significant, yeah. It's, a, it's Matt, an awful Matt, lot. Matt's going to check my numbers. <laughs> no, you're right. It's about, it's about four trillion uh, in 2014. Now, we don't, know, we don't know how much China spends. Um, we know that we can safely assert that that number has been growing rapidly. Um, the Chinese economy shows some, some uh, fundamental weaknesses that have you know, revealed themselves lately, what with their stock market collapse, that could uh, squeeze those numbers in coming years. That was, that was one of my questions, is how do you think that this recent start stock market turmoil is affecting their military spending, or, or is it at all? We don't know yet. 
I mean, there is going to be, first of all, we don't know how lasting the damage is going to be from the, I think the, the stock market correction in China is absolutely necessary because much of, of the apparent wealth in China is built on a massive real estate bubble that lacks real value because nobody actually wants that property or wants to live in it or use it for anything practical and sustainable. So uh, anyhow, the, the Chinese economy needs to correct, so the stock market needs to correct. And where it lands, I don't know, and what the long-term spending implications will be, I don't know. Let me, I'll go ahead and, and propose that 10% increases in your defense budget year on year are not sustainable for anybody, ever. So uh, China will settle uh, after a period of explosive growth, some of which is hollow. China will settle, uh, and you know, the real world will intervene in this apparent uh, economic miracle and uh, China will have less money to spend on its military. So, uh, but leaving aside spending, look at, look at China's priorities. So it, if it's got a pot of money, how does it allocate that pot of money for its military development? And it's, what's notable is the things that China doesn't buy. So the United States possesses huge logistical forces. So the, the, the kind of boring ships and planes that help your exciting ships and planes get to where they need to be, which is why Military Sea Lift Command, which is the quasi-civilian branch of the U.S. Navy, has uh, dozens of support ships, tankers and storage, um, dry storage ships that haul the oil and gas and weapons and food and spare parts uh, that you need to project your naval forces far from home. So the United States has a... Uh, a military, a naval logistical force that's bigger in terms of numbers of ships and tonnage than the entire navies of many countries. China does not. China possesses just a handful of logistical ships, and they are, on average, much smaller than American logistical ships, which is indicative that China doesn't want, uh, or at least can't for a while, uh, send to send uh, naval forces all over the world. Equally, uh, you look at China's investment in aerial tankers. So one of the secret weapons of the, of the U.S. military are these big, boring tanker planes, these converted airliners that haul gas and can deliver gas to fighters and bombers in the air. So those fighters and bombers can either travel to bases overseas or can fly long-range missions spanning hours or even days. The United States possesses more than 500 aerial tankers, uh, way more than the entire rest of the world combined. China possesses a handful, which is indicative. China does not, cannot or does not want to uh, project its air forces over long distance. All of this points to the fact that China has a regional military force with a regional a regional military strategy. Um, you, something you said interesting to me earlier that they need to maintain a large ground army because they should be concerned about Russia. Um, over here in America, at least, we like to talk about, and it's you know fun thing for armchair analysts to sit around and think about what a war between China and America would look like. Uh, I mean, you I mean you've kind of soundly debunked that we would ever have in it like that kind of open war. Do you think that, yeah, seriously, um, do you think that something like that could happen between China and Russia? And that, because China, I think people think that 
because they both used to be communist countries, they're all very they have a lot of they have a lot in common in their past, but that's not quite true. Yeah, I'm not right? an expert on uh, on um Russia China relations, but um I mean those those two countries have sure. been they fought a war along their border. Sure, and they've been enemies as often as they've been friends. I mean you might recall that during the 1980s China was an American ally. Uh yes. and uh the United States the United this is prior to Tiananmen. Uh the United States viewed China as a in a sense as a bulwark against the Soviet Union and for a while in the, in the 80s there were all these like expensive high-tech collaboration efforts between U.S. and China industry to re-equip the Chinese military with modern weapons so they could fight the Soviets. Uh, those days have passed. The politics have changed. But I don't think it's, it's, it's very – it's silly to assume that Russia and China are friends. But it's equally silly to say that they're on the brink of war or anything. I mean, but they – there's not like a scenario where uh, – there's just like there's no scenario where the United States and, and China go to war and everything turns out all right – uh, I, I also don't think you can go to war with Russia, one high-tech power uh, fighting Russia, uh, and the sort, there's like a winner of that conflict. So, um, yeah, cross your fingers and hope that doesn't happen either. People felt before World War One, and uh, you know, especially before World War One, but also World War Two, that there was this balance of terror, right? And to quote Star Trek, that you know, everybody, uh, I mean, the Dan, the war between different powers, great powers, would be incredibly damaging. Um, and now everybody knows that, that wars would be incredibly damaging. Does that really mean that they're off the table? No, I think, but, but David was saying that they're not off the table, but that they would be horrifying and cross your fingers that they don't happen, right? Okay, so it's just, but like, I mean, I guess it'd be worse than ever before because the bombs are bigger than ever before. Well, we also lived through the Cold War and didn't have the massive conflict that people were frightened of and some predicted, right? That's because we all have nukes. You really think that that's, that's the big game changer? It's, uh, it will require well, you, someone to be crazy? The world's nuclear powers possess an arsenal that could wipe out humanity uh, several times over in minutes. We can't ignore that reality. I mean, the nuclear weapons have shaped our geopolitics for for half a century um it's got to be a factor in the in the uh you know the the increasingly uh distant memory of uh great powers going to war it has to be because we uh, count, counter to what most people would think we were actually living through one of the most peaceful times in human history of all time right uh and i'm not i'm not ready to chalk that up to nukes like yay nukes but uh, we, when's the last time that two major nuclear powers went to war? Uh, it's very rare. Uh, I think the, the two countries, India and Pakistan, are constantly squabbling across their border. But even those two countries, um, there seems to be a limit on how hard they can fight each other, since they're both, uh, high-tech, uh, powers with, uh, uh, with nukes. You said, I thought, the smartest thing I'd heard in a long time about, you know, it's important to have a military. It's important to have land forces. It's important to have, a, you know, however many thousand tanks. It's not for show, but it's, it, it is about posturing, right? I mean, it's almost like monkeys making themselves large in order to drive off a predator, right? I yeah, mean <laughs> sure, but, I mean, we, we shouldn't forget that 
that there's still plenty of war in the world. The it's just that the kinds of wars that we that that great powers tend to fight now are um, limited in scale and duration. Are often uh, interventions in civil wars or conflicts between minor powers. Um, but yeah, the idea that two great powers would completely unleash their arsenals against each other. Uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that, that that's not going to happen, uh, because if it does happen, we are all wrong about everything, and so I don't mind being wrong on that count. Fair enough. Thank you very much for sort of walking us through this. Uh, I mean, a, as Matthew said, it's sort of like a war gamer's dream to sort of go through what might happen. Um, and it's interesting to just sort of learn. I mean, that's your answer to what might happen is we'd all be screwed. Well, <laughs> I mean, we'd all be the... screwed in, in, in what, in what event, in the event that the United States and, and China go fought it out over a bunch for... of islands in the, that South, doesn't you know? mean that they're, I mean, look at, look at China and Japan. They are ramming each other's ships and, uh, and harassing each other at sea and occupying, you know, little spits of land. And it's pretty forceful. It's not war by any means, but there's a military element to China's uh, disputes, territory disputes in the China Seas with Japan uh, and the Philippines, for that matter. Uh, and, and, I mean, there's other disputes, too, that could easily escalate into a push and shove. The United States hasn't gotten forcefully involved in those disputes wisely, but is certainly orbiting the... Uh, the field of battle, keeping an eye on things. Um, there, the I think the great, uh, the political or actual violence in the China Seas is yet to come, uh, as China continues to grow in milit in regional military strength and continues to boost the assertiveness of its claims in the region. Uh, we haven't seen the breaking point yet, and I don't know what happens when we reach that breaking point. I don't think it's going to be global Armageddon, uh, but uh, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked to see ships at sea uh, inflicting violence on each other, and I wouldn't be shocked to see American vessels somewhere in that mix. Uh, the the let's just say that when that ha if and when that happens, it's going to be incumbent on the diplomats to talk fast and convincingly. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, Matthew, do you have anything you want to add in here? Um, no, no, I'm good. Just the, <laughs> the, the, the chaos of history scares me, and it's always something unexpected. I feel like it's often something unexpected that we didn't see that, that, that sneaks up and causes these large con conflicts. But uh, hopefully David's right, because he's right. The consequences would be awful. All right. Well, thank you both uh, for talking with me today, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Next time on War College. Almost exactly the same kind of thing you see at parties. Glow sticks came out of a Navy development program that started during the Vietnam War as a way of creating a target marking aid.